0: section four of a book of scoundrels by charles wibley this librivox recording is in the public domain Mole cutpurse and jonathan wilde part two jonathan wilde when jonathan wilde and the count Larousse in fielding's narrative took a hand at cards jonathan picked his opponent's pocket though he knew it was empty while the Count, from sheer force of habit, stacked the cards, though Wilde had not a farthing to lose. And if in his uncultured youth the great man stooped to prig with his own hand, he was early cured of the weakness, so that Fielding's picture of the hero taking a bottle-screw from the ordinary's pocket in the very moment of death is entirely fanciful. For this Machiavel of thieves, as a contemporary styled him, left others to accomplish what his ingenuity had planned. His was the high policy of theft. If he lived on terms of familiar intimacy with the milk ends, the bridal culls, the buttock files of London, he was none the less the friend and minister of justice. He enjoyed the freedom of Newgate and the old Bailey. He came and went as he liked. He packed juries, he procured bail, he manufactured evidence, and there was scarce an assize or a session's passed but he slew his man. The world knew him for a robber, yet could not refuse his brilliant service. At the poultry counter, you are told, he laid the foundations of his future greatness, and to the poultry counter he was committed for some trifling debt ere he had fully served his apprenticeship to the art and mystery of buckle-making. There he learned his craft, and at his enlargement he was able forthwith to commence thief-catcher. His plan was conceived with an effrontery that was nothing less than genius. On the one side, he was the factor, or rather the tyrant, of the cross-coves. On the other, he was the trusted agent of justice, the benefactor of the outraged and the plundered. Among his earliest exploits was the recovery of the Countess of G.'s chair, impudently carried off when her ladyship had but just alighted, and the courage wherewith he brought to justice the murderers of one Mrs. Knapp, who had been slain for some trifling booty established his reputation as upon a rock he at once advertised himself in the public prints as thief-catcher general of great britain and ireland and proceeded to send to the gallows every scoundrel that dared dispute his position his opportunities of gain were infinite even if he did not organise the robbery which his cunning was presently to discover he had spies in every hole and corner to set him on the felon's track. Nor did he leave a single enterprise to chance. He divided the city and suburbs into wards or divisions, and appointed the persons who were to attend each ward, and kept them strictly to their duty. If a subordinate dared to disobey or to shrink from murder, Jonathan hanged him at the next assize, and, happily for him, he had not a single confederate whose neck he might not put in the halter when he chose. Thus he preserved the union and the fidelity of his gang, punishing by judicial murder the smallest insubordination, the faintest suspicion of rivalry. Even when he had shut his victim up in Newgate, he did not leave him so long as there was a chance of blackmail he would make the most generous offers of evidence and defence to every thief that had a stiver left him. But whether or not he kept his bargain, that depended upon policy and inclination. On one occasion, when he had brought a friend to the old bailey and relented at the last moment, he kept the prosecutor drunk from the noble motive of self-interest until the case was over. And so esteemed was he of the officers of the law that even this interference did but procure a reprimand. His meanest action marked him out from his fellows, but it was not until he habitually pillaged the treasures he afterwards restored to their grateful owners for a handsome consideration, that his art reached the highest point of excellence. The event was managed by him with amazing adroitness from beginning to end. It was he who discovered the wealth and habit of the victim. It was he who posted the thief and seized the plunder, giving a paltry commission to his hirelings for the trouble. It was he who kept whatever valuables were lost in the transaction, and as he was the servant of the court, discovery or inconvenience was impossible. Surely the machiavel of thieves is justified of his title. He was known to all the rich and titled folk in town, and if he was generally able to give them back their stolen valuables at something more than double their value, he treated his clients with the most proper insolence. When Lady M. was unlucky enough to lose a silver buckle at Windsor, she asked Wilde to recover it, and offered the hero twenty pounds for his trouble. "'Zooms, madam,' says he, "'you offer nothing. It cost the gentleman who took it forty pounds for his coach, equipage, and other expenses to Windsor.' his impudence increased with success, and in the geniality of his cups he was wont to boast his amazing rogueries, hinting not without vanity at the poor understandings of the greatest part of mankind and his own superior cunning. In fifteen years he claimed ten thousand pounds for his dividend of recovered plunderings and who shall estimate the monies which flowed to his treasury from blackmail and the robberies of his gang? So brisk became his trade in jewels and the precious metals, that he opened relations with Holland, and was master of a fleet. His splendour increased with wealth. He carried a silver-mounted sword, and a footman tramped at his heels. His table was very splendid, says a biographer. He seldom dining under five dishes. The reversions whereof were generally charitably bestowed on the side felons. At his second marriage with Mrs. Mary D., the hempen widow of D, his humour was most happily expressed. He distributed white ribbons among the turnkeys. He gave the ordinary gloves and favours. He sent the prisoners of Newgate several anchors of brandy for punch. "'Twas a fitting complacence." since his fortune was drawn from newgate and since he was destined himself a few years later to drink punch a liquor nowhere spoken against in the scriptures with the same ordinary whom he thus magnificently decorated endowed with considerable courage for a while he had the prudence to save his skin and despite his bravado he was known on occasion to yield a plundered treasure to an accomplice who set a pistol to his head but it is certain that the accomplice died at Tyburn for his pains, and on equal terms Jonathan was resolute with the best. On the trail he was savage as a wild beast. When he arrested James Wright for a robbery committed upon the persons of the Earl of B and the Lord Bruce, he held on to the victim's chin by his teeth—an exploit which reminds you of the illustrious Tiger Roche. Even in his lifetime, he was generously styled the Great, the Scourge of London. He betrayed and destroyed every man that ever dared to live upon terms of friendship with him. It was Jonathan that made Blueskin a thief, and Jonathan screened his creature from justice, only so long as clemency seemed profitable. At the first hint of disobedience, Blueskin was committed to Newgate. When he had stood his trial, and was being taken to the condemned hole, he beckoned to wild as though to a conference and cut his throat with a penknife the assembled rogues and turnkeys thought their jonathan dead at last and rejoiced exceedingly therein straightway the poet of newgate's garland leapt into verse then hopeless of life he drew his penknife and made a sad widow of jonathan's wife but forty pounds paid her her grief shall appease and every man round me may rob if he please But Jonathan recovered, and Molly, his wife, was destined a second time to win the conspicuous honour that belongs to a hempen widow. As his career drew to its appointed close, fortune withheld her smiles. People got so peery, complained the great man, that ingenious men were put to dreadful shifts. And then, highest tribute to his greatness, an act of Parliament was passed which made it a capital offence for a prig to steal with the hands of other people, and in the increase of public vigilance his undoing became certain. On the 2nd of January, 1725, a day not easy to forget, a creature of Wilde's spoke with fifty yards of lace worth forty pounds at his captain's bidding, and Wilde, having otherwise disposed of the plunder, was charged on the 10th of March, that he did feloniously receive of Catherine Stetham ten guineas on account, and under colour of helping the said Catherine Stetham to the lace again, and did not then, nor any time since, discover or apprehend, or cause to be apprehended and brought to justice, the persons that committed the said felony. Thus runs the indictment, and to the inexpressible relief of lesser men, Jonathan Wilde was condemned to the gallows. Thereupon he had serious thoughts of putting his house in order. With an ironical smile he demanded an explanation of the text—Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. But presently reflecting that his time was but short in this world, he improved it to the best advantage in eating, drinking, swearing, cursing, and talking to his visitants. For all his bragging, drink alone preserved his courage. He was very restless in the condemned hole, though he gave little or no attention to the condemned sermon which the purblind ordinary preached before him, and which was, in Fielding's immortal phrase, unto the Greeks foolishness. But in the moment of death his distinction returned to him. He tried, and failed, to kill himself, and his progress to the nubbing cheat was a triumph of execration. He reached Tyburn through a howling mob, and died to a yell of universal joy. The ordinary has left a record so precious and so lying that it must needs be quoted at length. The great thief-catcher's confession is a masterpiece of comfort, and is so far removed from the truth as completely to justify Fielding's incomparable creation. Finding there was no room for mercy—and how could I expect mercy, who never showed any Thus does the devil-dodger dishonour our Jonathan's memory. As soon as I came into the condemned hole, I began to think of making a preparation for my soul. To part with my wife, my dear Molly, is so great an affliction to me that it touches me to the quick, and is like daggers entering into my heart. How tame the ordinary falsehood to the brilliant invention of fielding, who makes Jonathan kick his tishy in the very shadow of the tree. And the reverend gentleman gains an unction as he goes. In the cart they all kneeled down to prayers, and seemed very penitent. The ordinary used all the means imaginable to make them think of another world, and after singing a penitential psalm they cried, Lord Jesus Christ, receive our souls. The cart drew away, and they were all turned off. This is as good an account as can be given by me. Poor ordinary! if he was modest he was also untruthful and you are certain that it was not thus the hero met his death even had fielding never written his masterpiece jonathan wilde would still have been surnamed the great for scarce a chap-book appeared in the year of jonathan's death that did not expose the only right and true view of his character his business says one hack of prison literature at all times was to put a false gloss upon things and to make fools of mankind another precisely formulates the theory of greatness insisted upon by fielding with so lavish an irony and so masterly a wit while it is certain that the history of the late mr jonathan wilde is as noble a piece of irony as literature can show while for the qualities of wit and candour it is equal to its motive it is likewise true that therein you meet the indubitable Jonathan Wilde. It is an entertainment to compare the chapbooks books of the time with the reasoned Finnish work of art, not in any spirit of pedantry, since accuracy in these matters is of small account, but with intent to show how doubly fortunate Fielding was in his genius and in his material. Of course the writer rejoiced in the aid of imagination and eloquence. Of course he embellished his picture with such inspirations as Miss Letitia and the Count. Of course he preserves from the first page to the last the highest level of unrivalled irony. But the sketch was there before him, and a lawyer's clerk had treated Jonathan in a vein of heroism within a few weeks of his death. And since a plain statement is never so true as fiction, Fielding's romance is still more credible. Still convinces with an easier effort than the serious and pedestrian records of his contemporaries. Nor can you return to its pages without realizing that, so far from being the evolution of a purely intellectual conception, Jonathan Wilde is a magnificently idealized and ironical portrait of a great man. End of section four.